The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. farewell words of Jesus in John. In John 17, we have the long prayer of Jesus, the longest prayer recorded that Jesus spoke, evidently having spoken it within the hearing of the disciples. We think the location would be the Garden of Gethsemane, though that is not actually told. This would be before he prayed that agonizing prayer of, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And we are in the midst of this prayer. We've looked at it as he first spoke to the Father and said he was asking in the first five verses for God to be glorified in his death and what would take place. But then in verse 6 onward, he began speaking of praying for the disciples themselves. And we considered that through verse 12 last time. So we're picking up and right in the middle of things. Jesus is the spokesman, of course. Praying to his Father in verse 13 of John 17. Listen. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. It was exactly 52 years ago, this particular day, that the popular Christian writer C.S. Lewis died. Few people noticed his death at the time because the date was November 22nd, 1963. Many of you will realize that that was the day, of course, that President Kennedy was assassinated. Later on, people caught up with the fact that C.S. Lewis had died. This British scholar, Lewis, was a longtime bachelor who met a wife in his 60s. Her name was Joy Davidman. And therefore, you might think that when I speak about his 1955 autobiography titled Surprised by Joy, that that was a book about marrying a woman named Joy late in your life. But that actually had nothing to do with the title of the book. Lewis was talking about something he called joy, which came to him in a discovery that was a life-transforming experience. He very early on, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, was a skeptic, an agnostic, raised in a home where his mother was a quiet believer, but his father was 
pretty strong as a cynical man who didn't believe in anything he couldn't see or test with his own sight. Lewis grew up loving literature and mythology and teaching those subjects at Oxford University. He knew the classics, he knew great literature very well, and his intellect taught him to love and long for the well-crafted sentence or the beautiful line of poetry in which he would speak about a sensation called joy, just in lovely words put together, expressing the aspirations or the ideals of mankind. Well, to his utter surprise, in 1929, the the still relatively young college professor discovered what he said was the essence of true joy. And it wasn't in literature. And it wasn't a, a, a sensation of happiness that he felt by reading a beautiful poem. It was actually the object of joy, not the feeling that joy engendered. Lewis said, to find joy, I finally realized I must not seek a sensation, but its object. And he told, as he described his conversion to Christ, he said, He actually called God the adversary because he felt like God was pursuing him and wouldn't let go. And he said, the adversary closed in on me. I finally gave in and admitted God was God. And thus was converted possibly the finest apologist and defender of Christianity of the 20th century. Lewis described that encounter finally with God as a quiet thing. It was interesting. You know, some, some conversions are very dramatic. We think of the Apostle Paul and the Damascus Road and the tremendous emotion and drama of meeting Christ there. Lewis's could not have been more different. He described it in a couple sentences. He said, it was not highly emotional, It was more like a man after a long night's sleep lying motionless in bed, suddenly being aware that he is fully awake. I love that description. Suddenly being fully aware that I'm fully awake to the universe and its God. Well, I wonder what you think when we speak about the joy of knowing God and knowing Christ. It's not about a Christian merely wearing a simplistic yellow happy face. You all know the happy face, right? I don't wear one of those faces. God didn't give me one of those. You could paint it on me, I suppose, in one of these face painting exercises, but that's not the face God gave me. And there are a lot of people who are convinced that I have a sad face because it's serious. I know people who first came to get acquainted with me in this church, they thought, oh, does this guy ever laugh? Does he have a sense of humor at all? And they just thought I was so serious. Well, I'm talking about joy today, not lighthearted happiness. And joy is something much deeper than just being cheerful. In one of his Narnia books, C.S. Lewis said there, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes a person altogether serious. You see, joyful can be serious, something that runs deep within us rather than just a momentary laugh at a joke or or being cheered up for a few minutes. 
As we have traced this farewell discourse of Jesus and this prayer now in chapter 17, remember he's speaking to his 11 disciples before the cross. Deadly serious things are on the line. They are confused. He's talked about death. He's talked about departing from them. They're unhappy about that. If they had any idea what was really ahead the next day, they would have been horrified. And yet, Jesus, in speaking to them in in these chapters, starting at chapter 14, has had a fair amount to say about joy of all things. Chapter 15, verse 11, he said, I promise that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Chapter 16, verse 24, he predicted, your hearts will rejoice when I return after this departure from you, and no one will take your joy from you. Was he just whistling in the dark, you know, trying to give them something cheerful? Now we read in the key verse for today, and most of my thoughts are about verse 13 in chapter 17 here. He says that I want to see, Father, I want to see my joy fulfilled in them, in these disciples. My joy fulfilled in them. Well, he must be talking about something quite different than the variety of happiness that a lot of people knew. Last night, I'm sure, isn't Saturday night probably the prime night of the week for parties? People go out and the bars are full and, and hey, let's go have some fun. Let's get some, you need some joy in your life. And they're saying, come with me to the bar and we'll pour a few drinks and down them and we'll be joyful. I always think it's a great irony that people think alcohol is for joy. Alcohol is actually a depressant. It gives you a high and then it slams you to the floor the next morning. But yet, this is what many people think they can't have any fun unless they have an alcoholic drink in their hands. Jesus was speaking about peculiar joy at a time when people had sadness and confusion And we know that what he's saying had to be independent from physical substances like alcohol. It had to be independent of the circumstances, which were appearing to be tragic. It had to be something independent and given by God. More than a passing moment of pleasure, a never-failing joy, the long-term possession of believing people who can face difficulties and sorrows and tragedies and human separations and brokenness with this joy. Because the Scripture has that very memorable sentence in Hebrews 12, 2 that we often say about Christ and His joy, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and despised its shame. Not just a little bit of happiness, but some enduring relationship with God that impelled Jesus to face the most horrific thing that a man could possibly face, go through the cross because he knew there was the delight of pleasing and obeying his Father on the other side of that. Well, today I first of all ask this question, and it won't take too long with it, but I ask the question, can we see this joy of Christ coming to life within the first century church. In other words, did the joy of Jesus actually impact disciples after the cross and resurrection? He promised that it would be theirs. Is that what we see? Think ahead. Think beyond 
the cross. We remember that Jesus spoke here in chapter 16 just a couple of weeks ago. We looked at verse 21 there, the analogy of a woman enduring the pains of childbirth because certainly the agony of that isn't something that's going to be permanently terrorizing her or marking her because the joy of her baby is going to displace it. Well, if we study the resurrection accounts as we do at Easter time and bring forth what the Scripture says about that, we know what happened. I could go through each of the different Gospels and just give you Matthew 28 as an example of how the the people ran from the tomb, it says, with fear and great joy. Fear on the one hand because this was something astounding, something, wow, what happened? But joy because they already were beginning to believe that this meant their Savior was alive. At Christmas time, you know, we sing carols and we, we believe me, uh, Pat Bleeker and I map it out. We've already done that as we do for every December. So you can't tell us at the end of December You didn't sing, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. Uh, You weren't here, perhaps, but we sang it. We'll guarantee you. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Christmas, of course, right? But why couldn't we take that and, and just reinvent it a little bit and make it joy to the world, the Lord has returned, and sing it on Easter? Because, of course, Easter is the great day of rejoicing. Jesus is alive. Christian believers in the first century led by the apostles were certainly not gloomy, miserable people. When our kids were small, I remember reading this, the uh, Winnie the Pooh stories to them. My favorite character was always Eeyore. Remember Eeyore the donkey. Eeyore who always saw the negative side. You know, Pooh could say, isn't it a wonderful day, Eeyore? Look, the sun is shining. Oh, I guess it's okay. That would be Eeyore. That was not the typical Christian of the first century. Eeyore had no place among them. They were people of abounding joy. Their lives throbbed with purpose and hope. Their Savior lived. And they'd been given the mission to take his gospel into the world. The verb to rejoice in Greek occurs 70 times in the New Testament in connection with the disciples and, and what they were doing. Their rejoicing is, is a dominant note. In Acts 2.46, we have a summary of the pulse beat of the first Christian church and what it was doing. As it says there, they broke bread together with glad sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with the people. And then the next verse says, the Lord added to them daily those who were being saved. Now, I think verse 47 is a consequence of verse 46, because there were glad and sincere hearts and rejoicing in God, people were being added, you see. Evangelism for them wasn't a program or an outline that they memorized and said, now let me get all these verses memorized, and then I can go out and kind of give this program, you know, the four laws or something to to somebody to win them to Christ, go through the program and see if I get a convert. That isn't it at all. What What we're told of there is that these were vibrant, radiant lives in which Christ shined forth. And the inward joy that these people showed as new creations in Christ was was just a natural thing attracting people. People were saying, where did that come from? Why are they so different? How did they get like that? 
And that was the impulsive force of conversions in the first century church. The Apostle James writes in the early part of his letter, James 1-2, saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. What a realist. You're going to meet trials. And you can look at the trial and count it as a trial. And then you'll be Eeyore. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Or you can do what James says, look at the trial and say, I need to rejoice. God is working here. I I can't see how, and and it doesn't add up to me at the moment, but I'm going to trust him and know that he's doing something great. Without a doubt, we we could see many other things to tell us that the joy of Christ was alive in the first century church. Well, what about the 21st century church? If I said to you, do you think the 21st century church exhibits the joy of Christ? I'd get a mixed response, I think. Some could come back and say, hmm, well, I could sure come up with plenty of churches that fight and split and do nasty things and are not obeying the Great Commission and are doctrinally off track and people are miserable or even angry at one another." And yet I would challenge you to get to know this congregation. We are far from perfect, of course, but you don't have to look too far to find the joy of Christ at work in amazing ways in the life of our people here. Paul correctly said, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Did you hear what he was saying? If, if all we think is that we're going to have a glad time and everything's going to go our way in this life, that's foolishness, Paul is saying. We would be absolutely miserable if that's what we looked for. If we did not have an eternal hope and security anchored in the risen Christ, that in eternity all will be right and, and God will be just and we will be before him in everlasting joy, we couldn't look at this world and find joy at all because this world is a bleak and dark and pessimistic place. I think you watch the same news I do. Wow. You know, everybody's on heightened alert now. Where are the terrorists coming next? Are they coming in Westminster's front door with their weapons? Who knows? Perhaps they would. What are we to do? Barricade ourselves behind barbed wire and and put shotguns on the roof or something? No. God doesn't call us to that. We look around us and we say, where, tell me where in this world of ours, as I watch the news day in, day out, is there some kind of cause for joy? We don't see it very much. We see the forms of our own government being twisted and battered, that our constitution is forgotten about. Leaders don't seem to know how to lead. We've got a whole bevy of people who want to be leaders, and we wonder if they can lead. I'm not going to get into that one directly. We look at our private and public morality standards, and we say, look what's happening. Things are eroding all over the place. Where am I supposed to find joy in a fallen world like this? Well, the answer is the joy doesn't come from the fallen world. The joy has to live in defiance of the fallen world. And you can even look at churches and say, well, the churches are doing a pretty good job to discourage me about thinking that there's too much joy there. A story made the rounds among preachers' commentaries. I can't verify that it actually happened, but it's one of those urban legend kinds of stories that I happen to like. It said that in Scotland there was a church meeting, very contentious. The members were 
fighting over some minor point and were choosing up sides and battering each other. And the meeting ended and the church janitor came into the Scottish church to clean up. And he found a scrap of paper that must have been a note that somebody wrote down and passed it to somebody down the pew as a result of this meeting. The paper had this written on it. I remember this is Scotland. It said, to dwell above with saints in love, aye, that will be a glory. To dwell below with saints I know, oh, that's a different story. And don't we say that about the church many times? The church disappoints us. God's people disappoint us corporately and individually. And yet the apostle Paul urged the Philippians as a command, as an imperative In Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. I say it to you again. Rejoice. I'm repeating it. Commanding you twice. Rejoice. Rejoice. I don't say what are your circumstances. I say it is your duty from Paul that we would rejoice. And he can say this because he's not drawing joy from the current circumstances. You know what the word circumstance, interesting derivation, Latin word circum, around, stare, the verb to stand. So it means the things that stand around us, all of the happenings that happen. You know, we look at the bumper stickers, stuff happens, all kinds of stuff, bad stuff, ugly stuff, untrue stuff floods its way into our lives. Are we going to base our joy on that? Well, good luck if that's what you're basing it on. You're going to need that artificial happy face because there won't be any genuine delight in the things that come to you from mere circumstances. I could inquire of you today, and I did this after service with a number of people to see if they were listening. How are you today? And you would answer probably, how do we always answer that? Usually we just kind of, we're so used to being asked that we don't, we just fine, you know doesn't matter if we're dying inside. We say, fine. How are you? Well, your answer is probably going to depend on your health, your mood, your finances, your family, your career, uh, students, how your grades are doing, how your friends are treating you, all kinds of circumstances that stand around you. You base your joy on that. You say, oh, it's not such a good day, as a matter of fact. Try this one, Christian. You've heard this before, many of you. Somebody says, how are you doing? You want to get a conversation started? Tell the person, I'm much better than I deserve to be. That's Christian joy. That's joy based on God's dealing with us in Christ, not on how things happen to be going in my life at this particular moment. Last week we heard Jesus pray to the Father about keeping us. I emphasize that word He said, I have kept them, kept those that the Father gave him, secure. I've watched over them. I'm guarding them. Isn't that a tremendous inducement to a continuing and longstanding spiritual joy? certainly should be. Now, a quick third point, because really it seems like I've only dealt with verse 13 here, and I have, and there's more in this text that I'm not going to cover, but The other verses, 14 through 19, mostly seem to stress the idea of being uh, Christ giving his word, the Father's word being revealed 
to the disciples. You might say, well, that's changing the subject. That's not about joy. I see a link, very direct link. I see these other verses telling us that Jesus prayed for joy to be restored and sustained by the giving of his word, the word of God. He knew that we would lose touch with our joy, just like David who prayed in Psalm 51 when he sinned so miserably and turned his back on God for a period of time and he came pleading for uh, forgiveness. He repented. And one of the things he said was, Father, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He'd lost sight of it in deceiving himself, in, in committing adultery and tricking the woman's husband and so on into a, a deadly place for him to die. Restore the joy, Father. I've lost it in my sin. Well, Jesus prayed that our joy could be restored when he said things like, I have given them your word, Father, so sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart. Take them out of that place where they're simply surrounded by circumstances. You know the old westerns that I don't even guess kids can't even imagine this anymore. We used to watch westerns all the time on TV. And you had the famous covered wagon scene and the wagons were circled and the Indians were riding around. I would have thought the Indians would get dizzy after a while. And they're shooting their arrows and the pioneers are shooting back at them. And the circumstances were attacking. The things that were around them were attacking. Well, God is saying, set them apart. So they are not simply subject to all those circumstances, but rather my truth can be that which impacts them. Set them apart so they can hear my written word, and that will bring them joy as they begin to obey it and be refreshed by it and take hold of its promises. Truth will counteract the worldly lies of circumstances. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The statutes or writings of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. As we obey the word of God, it brightens our spirit. It fortifies us. It literally sets us apart from being the victims of mere circumstance and feeds God's truth into us that refuels our joy. I don't know what you'll think of this illustration. Maybe you'll think it's a little crazy, but... We know something today about young children that we have to be very careful about. Even in this congregation, we know we have children with severe food allergies, such as a peanut allergy. Now listen, this is no trivial thing. We know that a child who would contact, let's say, a toy in a nursery where one child had been there and had had a peanut butter sandwich or something and had some peanut butter unwashed from his hands, played with the toy, the next child comes along, that smear of peanut butter could actually be deadly. There are children that are that strongly allergic to peanut oil. They go into anaphylactic shock that can be fatal. Well, their parents know that they have to carry with them or have with the caregiver who's in charge of the child an EpiPen device. Many of you know what this is. I understand it. It's like a hypodermic device that you jab into the child's thigh so that medication floods into his system to counteract that fatal reaction. Maybe this is an odd comparison, but 
I would say I have experienced the Word of God jolting my system like an EpiPen applied when I have been in shock over the reaction to lies told to me by my circumstances. My circumstances are saying, God has abandoned you. This makes no sense. God is not blessing you. God is not caring for you. I need his word to set me apart to the truth and set me back on the path of joy again. Circumstances cannot be counted on. In fact, they have to be defied to live in the joy of God through Jesus Christ. Joy is an outgrowth of obedience to God's revealed word. Now, Jesus left us a legacy of joy. He said, I want my joy to be fulfilled in these disciples. That includes us. He wants us to have this. Again, not artificial, superficial. I remember a Sunday school song. My wife says I always reacted like a 30-year-old when I was seven or eight, but we were taught a song in Sunday school that I don't remember how it started. I just remember that the chorus had something in it like, and I am happy, 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 happy all the day. Well, as an eight-year-old, I said, I'm not happy, happy, happy all the day. Are these other kids in this room happy, happy, happy? Are those teachers happy, happy, happy? No, that's not realistic. Yes, there's a joy that God gives us in Christ. But it's not a foolish, superficial happiness. It rather is a glad-hearted, peace-filled, enduring satisfaction in knowing my God and Savior and his care over me. And it's Scripture that communicates that more than anything else. That's why the emphasis on Jesus saying here, I've given them your word. That's going to be their joy source. Some of you know a writer named Jerry Bridges, written a lot of Christian books. Bridges said this, I quote him, to be joyless in Christ is to dishonor God and to deny his loving control over our lives. It's a form of practical atheism, to be joyless. But to be joyful in the Lord, he said, is to seek the power of the Holy Spirit in us and determine that we will say regularly to a watching world, our God reigns. That's what a joyful person says. God is best glorified when his people are truly delighted in him independently of physical circumstances, illness, tragedy, grief. Heaven's grand surprise is going to be our being plunged into a limitless sea of joy in our God, knowing him face to face. Joy set before us will let us endure anything to reach that goal. Our Father, thank you for the joy Jesus exhibited. It didn't make sense. How in the world could he know that cross was coming, that crown of thorns, those nails, all the spitting and whips and everything else, and endure for joy's sake? But he did. And we thank you. We pray that the legacy of the joy of Jesus would live in us 
we are never going to show it in the wonderful way he did. But thank you for even glimmers and glimpses of it to help us endure and take delight in you this day and forever. Amen.